I'm glad that you guys are here this morning. Uh, we have finally made it to John chapter 6. And so we're uh, going to be turning the corner. I want to read the text for us, and we're going to dig right in. There's so much here. I'm reminded of what we said when we first started uh, the Gospel of John. Augustine is said to have, have quipped about the Gospel of John that it's shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And that's exactly how I feel about this text this morning. John chapter 6 is so meaty. There's so much here and so much rich application for us. Uh, And in just these first 15 verses we're going to look at this morning, uh, but we're going to be in John for a few weeks, uh, John chapter 6 for a few weeks, and it's just going to repeat over and over again. Let me read the text for us. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then he, seeing the large crowd was was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to take him and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Father, this text is so beautiful and so rich. It's not unlike the rest of the Bible. It's so full of meat, uh, Lord. But this particular text is so beautiful. There's so much here, so much personal application we can see. Uh, Lord, thank you for pulling back the curtain on who you are in this text. May we see it with, with our eyes this morning. May we hear it with our ears. May we receive it with our minds and our hearts. Holy Spirit, will you convict of sin? challenge us where we are not trusting you as the the bread of life, Jesus. Convict us and challenge us where we're not clinging to you and spur us on to trusting in you in even greater degrees. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, this text is beautiful and it's amazing and 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 really, we're transitioning from chapter 5, where we had a lot of theological statements about who Jesus is. He made those statements, and then he provided a lot of evidence. For us in the West, with our Western minds, it fit perfect. It's point A, point B, point C, one, two, three. It's logical. It makes a lot of sense. But now we're turning the corner, and we're not getting as much information as we are getting a picture. Jesus is pulling back the curtain on who he is. He is revealing his power and his majesty and his provision and his greatness. And we're getting a full picture of who he is beginning here in chapter 6. This is one of the only miracles outside of the resurrection. 
This is one of the only miracles outside of the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. So there's something significant that we're supposed to learn about this story, this feeding of the 5,000. I know that we've, we're familiar with it. I know that we've maybe heard it. Many of us have heard it since, since vacation Bible school and in church when we were kids. But I hope that this morning we'll hear it with new eyes and, and fresh ears this morning. John's not concerned like the other disciples with giving a bunch of details. He gets right to the story. He says there was a large crowd following Jesus, and he went up on the mountainside. He sat down with his disciples, and he turned to one of his disciples, Philip, and he said, where are we going to buy bread to feed this many people? And what we see in this text, what we're going to see this morning, is first the setting and the magnitude of this, this issue. It's, it's unbelievable, the crowd size. So the magnitude of this situation, and then it's going to lead us to Philip's answer and Andrew's answer, and they're going to reveal, probably unknowing to themselves, they're going to reveal the impossibility of human solutions. The absolute hopelessness of the situation and the impossibility of human solutions. And then what we're going to see is Jesus providing an overabundant, excessive provision. It just goes, it blows the mind. In fact, that's one of the things, that's one of the distinctions that the Gospel of John provides for us. He's going to provide some details, some words in this text that the other Gospel writers don't use. He's going to emphasize the excessive, overabundant provision of Jesus in the face of hopelessness. And then lastly, why is he going to do this? And this is really where John's going. He's building this case here that Jesus is our true and better Moses. The reason that Jesus can provide such excessive, overabundant provision is because he is our provision himself. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So let's dig in. Let's look at the magnitude of the situation, the setting here. John chapter 6, we get the after this. It's not necessarily directly connected to chapter 5. Many talk about the fact that John's not concerned with chronology but theology. So he, he has moved chapter 5 which was Jesus healing the paralytic at the temple, he has moved that from a later time. He's moved that in front of this, and John is connecting these two stories in order to make a case and, and tell us a, something about who Jesus is. And it says that he went up on a mountain to, 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 with the disciples. He was in the wilderness. He's in this setting here. It says that he's crossed the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is smaller than the Mobile Bay. It was 13 miles long and about seven to eight miles wide, so you could see the other side. Jesus has gone with his disciples to this other side. The other side of the Sea of Galilee was known as wilderness country or hill country. It was sometimes referred to as a desolate place or a deserted place. In fact, Mark refers to it when he gives this recounting. He calls it the desolate place that Jesus and his disciples went across the Sea of Galilee to a desolate place or a wilderness place. And then what we see is there is a large crowd following, and that's probably an understatement. Later in the text, we're going to see that, that Jesus tells the disciples to have the people sit down, and, and we're told that 5,000 men sat down. Well, when Matthew recounts this same story, he says that there were many besides men. There were women and children there as well. That, that 5,000 was just referring to the men, so there's likely women and children, and there's likely ten to 15,000 people. 5,000 is a pretty remarkable story. Ten to 15,000, we don't have to embellish this story, but ten to 15,000 is astonishing. 
Think about 10 to 15,000. You guys all watched college football yesterday. Our stadiums hold 85, 87,000, 100,000, depending on your team. 15,000 people is a massive crowd. Men, women, and children following Jesus. And then we see one other important context clue here. This is right near or before the Passover. And that's going to come into play in this story throughout chapter 6. But it's important for us to see. So the magnitude of the situation is important for us to see. Ten to 15,000 people following Jesus. They're following not because he's the Messiah. They're following him because they want something out of him. They think that he can provide them with something, particularly healing. Ten to 15,000 people coming after Jesus. And here we see now the hopelessness of this situation and the impossibility of human solutions. Jesus, John takes us right to the question. Jesus turns to Philip and he says, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus is not panicking, by the way. This is not, oh my gosh, where are we going to get all the bread? That's not what ha- what's happening here. He, it says in the text that he's asking a question to Philip, and it says in order to test him. And then it goes on and says, because he knew what he was going to do. Jesus is a great master teacher, and every master teacher, every great teacher knows that sometimes asking a question is better than making a direct statement. And so Jesus is asking a question in order to test. And test can mean to trip up or to, or, or to test or to cause to stumble. Or it can mean, in this sense, to evaluate, to draw out, to teach something. And that's the case with what's going on here. Do you remember the last time we saw Philip? One of the first disciples that was called. Do you remember what he was doing? You remember that he, he ran and he found another disciple, and he he proclaimed and he exclaimed, we found the one whom Moses wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. So Philip has made this proclamation all the way back in chapter 1, and now Jesus is asking Philip, in essence, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that I'm the one that Moses wrote about? Do you really believe that I'm the Messiah? I'm the Savior of the world? Do you remember what happened in chapter 5? Do you remember how he ended chapter 5? What was the accusation that Jesus made against the religious leaders? You don't believe Moses, who wrote about me. There's a direct connection here. That that Jesus is asking this question to draw out Philip's confession. Do you really believe that I am the true and better Moses? I'm the prophet. Deuteronomy 18.15. I'm the one that Moses said you must listen to and obey. Do you really believe that? But I think Jesus is doing more than just revealing something to Philip. I think he's revealing something to us and to his audience at this time. He's asking them a question. He's asking to reveal to them. He's asking, where will we buy bread in this desolate wilderness place? Or maybe said another way, who is going to provide for all of these people? What do you think, Philip? What do you think, crowd? What do you think? Where is the hope? Where is the answer? Where is the solution to such a hopeless situation? Where is the answer to such an impossible situation? What's fascinating is Philip does exactly what you and I would do, at least exactly what I would do. His knee-jerk reaction is to calculate in his head how much it would cost to feed all of these people. And his answer is, 
Eight months' wages, that's what 200 denarii, denarii would, would be. Eight months' wages would not be enough to feed this crowd. They wouldn't even get a little bite on eight months' wages. Philip immediately goes to the impossibility of human answers. He immediately sees impossibility. He immediately sees that, that there's, not enough, there's not enough resources in the world. He's talking about quantity, right? There's not enough resources in the world to solve this hopelessness. There's not enough within our means. We couldn't work long enough to feed this crowd. This is an impossible situation. What's interesting is Andrew kind of builds on that. Andrew, one of the other disciples, points out, we have a little boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. We have a little boy here, and Andrew's answers are similar to Philip's. He almost looks like he's going to come through with the right answer. He says, look, look, we have a little boy here, and he has five loaves and two fish. And then he says, but what are these? What, what, these, what, what are, these won't solve the problem. There's no hope. There's no, there's no answer. What is Andrew saying? He's saying that it's impossible. There is no human solution to this problem. Andrew talks about, about quantity, but he also talks about quality here. Because five barley loaves, barley was, was understood to be the bread of the poor. And five barley loaves, don't think like Sunbeam Bakery, right? This is like little biscuits. I don't know about you, but I grew up, my, my grandmother, when she made homemade biscuits, right, she made those little flaky kind, the really small ones. And when she didn't make them homemade, she bought the Pillsbury dough kind and come in a little can like this. You pop it open, right? And there, So imagine five little Pillsbury dough biscuits. For even this crowd, that's not enough. And there's ten to 15,000 people here. Andrew's acknowledging that, that the quantity is insufficient and the quality of our answer is insufficient. Everything we could possibly present to this problem is insufficient. There is no human answer here. Not only do we not have enough money, the resources that we do have are woefully inadequate. They will not solve the problem. The best human solution will not solve the problem that we're facing here. The answer to the hopelessness of this situation simply is not within their means. It is not within their ability. In fact, it's not even within this world to solve. Here's what's interesting as we think about, just practically, just thinking about this so far. I, I think about these disciples, and this is, as meditating again on this yesterday, just, just thinking back through it. You, know, you notice the disciples went straight to human solutions, right? Anybody else do that? Yeah. I, I, I'm guilty of that. I, I go to my answer all the time. I go to my control and my circumstances. I go to what I can do. I go to what I can contribute to the solution and here these disciples are no different than you and I. These are disciples. These are followers of Jesus. These are people that, ju just like you and I, maybe they don't fully comprehend. I think their answers show they don't fully comprehend who he is. But they, they are not answering with who Jesus is. They're answering with what they can do. What I think is fascinating about this is on one level, their answer is absolutely right. Isn't it? That five little barley biscuits and two minnows are not going to solve this problem. That all the money in the world will not solve this problem. So on one level, their answer is right. But on the other level, their answer is absolutely wrong. 
Andrew does something that I think is fascinating because I think this is our tendency. Andrew recognizes, they both recognize the impossibility of the human answer here, but Andrew almost appears like he's going to say, but look, we have these two barley loaves and these, two, these five barley loaves and these two fish. Look, Jesus, look what you could do with these. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't go all the way. He acknowledges the impossibility, but he doesn't go all the way to acknowledge Jesus' excessive overabundant provision and ability. And I think about my own life, and I think about our lives, and I think about what our tendency is. Our tendency is to do the same thing, both in salvation and in sanctification. So in other words, it's one thing for us to acknowledge my inability to save myself. I can't save myself. I can't rescue myself. I can't earn it enough. I don't have enough ability in the world. I don't have enough power in the world. I don't have enough resources in the world. I don't have enough. But it's another thing, totally other thing, to acknowledge that and then to go the other step, the extra step, the further step that we must go to. I can't, but you can, Jesus. I can't solve this, but you can. And that's where Andrew falls short, and that's where Philip falls short. Think about it in our own spiritual growth. The same thing is true. Many of us acknowledge something might be sinful. That can't be good. That's not honoring to God. I shouldn't do that. Wrong. Bad, Neil. Bad. But it's a totally other thing to say, say this thing is not a pleasure that will satisfy. This thing is not, this thing is a lie. This thing is an idol. This thing, it's a totally other thing just to acknowledge that. But I must also acknowledge that and say, but Jesus, you are a greater pleasure. You're a greater joy. You're my overabundant provision. You are the one that will satisfy. Parents, it's one thing to say, I just can't, I don't have the wisdom to parent my child. It's another thing to say, Jesus, you are my wisdom. In the face of sin, it's one thing to say, I can't resist this sin. It's another thing to say, Jesus, you are my strength. Do you see the confession there? Do you see the radical difference? And I think this is a problem for us in our, our own spiritual walk. I think we do it in salvation. We acknowledge, I, I can't rescue myself, but we don't fully embrace who Jesus is sometimes. We don't fully go to, you are my salvation. You are my rescue. You are my provision. And I think we do the same thing in our own spiritual lives. We try to muster up the strength to resist sin, the strength to live holy and obedient lives, the strength, I've got to do this thing. I, I, I received Jesus as my salvation, but now I've got to work on my own to live this out. And that's simply not true. That's so not true, and that's not what the Scriptures teach us. No, you are not your own strength. You don't have all the answers. You don't have all the resources. There is no answer in the face of your hopelessness against sin and death. And there is no answer within you in the face of your own spiritual growth. The answer is always in Jesus. The trust, the hope must also always be in him. We must always embrace him, cling to him. He is my strength to resist. He's my strength to go. He's my strength to know. He's my strength to live. He's my strength to tell. He is my hope. And I must constantly confess that, always. Think about the correct answer to the question. Think about the correct answer to the question. Philip, where will we buy bread to feed such a massive crowd? The correct answer to the question Philip should have said is, buy bread? Jesus, we have you. You are our bread. You are our provision. 
we have you. We don't need anything else. If we, if we starve, then so what? We have you. You are our treasure. You are our pleasure. You are our joy. You are our bread from heaven. And this is exactly where Jesus goes in chapter 6. In fact, this is what he's going to challenge us to really think about, is why do you waste your life spending your, your life and your wheels and your energy and your resources on bread that perishes? Instead, receive me, the bread that does not perish, the, bread, the true bread from heaven. This is where he's going in this text. You remember when he asked later in, in John chapter 6, he asked, some disciples, they, they, many disciples, they walk away from him because of this teaching and some hard things he's going to say in chapter 6. And he turns to his disciples and he says, will you leave also? And do you remember Peter's answer? Where will we go? And what's his follow-up statement? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, you're our hope. The correct answer to the question for Philip, for Andrew is, hey, we have, we have five loaves and we have two fish and you know what? You're infinitely more. You can provide. You, can, you are our provider, and you are also our provision itself. And that leads us to the fact that Jesus is our overabundant provider. So he's revealed the hopelessness of the situation. He's revealed the impossibility of the situation. We see that there are no earthly solutions, that, that all human solutions are, are woefully inadequate. But then we see this emphasis that John is drawing our attention to. And only John. John. John is the only gospel writer that draws our attention to this. All the other gospel writers, you know what they say? What happens after the feeding of 5,000? What do they gather up? They gather up 12 basketfuls. That's all the other gospel writers say. But John adds so many more, so many more words, so much more language. He, he emphasizes it was, the, the provision was exceptional. It was infinite. It was excessively abundant, far beyond what anybody ever expected or imagined. He mentioned, we, t- we learned that there's ten to 15,000 people. First, the way that he does this is we see the crowd is there's ten to 15,000 people. And John says in verse 11, how much did they eat in verse 11? As much as they wanted. See, here's the problem with us. We read stories like this, and we've heard them for so long, we don't actually meditate on the words. We don't actually spend time in the Scripture. We don't actually let the Scripture read us. Jesus has provided a full, all-you-can-eat buffet in a wilderness setting for ten to 15,000 people, and everyone ate as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. Like, there was, there's no end. Like, do you want some more? Yes, please. Okay, there's plenty more here. Like, it's just infinite. It's never-ending. His provision far exceeds all that they could possibly imagine. There was no worry about running out. Let me say it again. Ten to 15,000 people in a wilderness setting. There's no super Walmart around the corner. There's no, they're, they're, they're in the wilderness. They're in the desolate place. And he's provided all that they need as much as they wanted There was never any danger of exhausting Jesus' provision. Think about those words for a second. There is never any danger of exhausting Jesus' grace. There's never any danger of exhausting his mercy. There's never any danger of exhausting his provision. Think on that good news. All you could ever want 
is found in Jesus. All you could ever want is found in him. All you could ever want in the face of the hopelessness of your sin, all you could ever want in the, in the face of your spiritual growth and spiritual life, all you could ever want is found in Jesus. Jesus provides the absolute best food, the absolute best fare, the absolute best wine. Remember, remember what happened in, in John chapter 2? We're getting an echo of John chapter 2. Jesus turning the water into the wine. And it's not just the average wine. It's not just a little wine. It's excessively overabundant best wine. What are we getting here again? Excessively overabundant provision. The other thing that's interesting is it says in verse 12, so they ate all that they wanted. In other words, there was no lack, there was no worry, there was no fear of exhausting. But they also ate their fill, verse 12. Their fill. This means they were filled up to completion. This means that they were fully satisfied with what Jesus provided. Think about this. Again, he's providing the best food and enough and as much as they could ever possibly want. They're filled up to completion. I'm thinking about Isaiah 55. As I'm studying through this, Isaiah 55, God speaks to his people and he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, Come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. This is exactly what Jesus is drawing out, and he will draw out again and again and again throughout this chapter. I am able to provide exceedingly abundantly far more than you could ever possibly imagine or exhaust. And in me is your true satisfaction. You know, in, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says something very similar. That, that the, the greatness of who God is, the greatness of who Jesus is, far supersedes, exceeds, far surpasses anything we could ever think or even imagine. Are you hearing the word of God this morning? That, that all of Jesus, everything that he is, far exceeds anything you could possibly ever dream up in terms of satisfaction, joy, pr- pleasure, privilege, enjoyment. And then there's this final last thing that John draws out that the other disciples say, but, or the other gospel writers say, but, but he really draws out a couple of, couple of times here. In verse 12, he told, in 13, he tells the disciples, go and gather up, what's he say? Leftovers. And they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments. That's not necessarily different than the other gospel writers. And then he says, that, was, that were left by those who had eaten. This word leftover is interesting. I think we have it on the screens here. It, it means to be excessively overabundant. It, it means that Jesus' provision was excessively more than what was needed for the occasion. Jesus' provision was excessively more than what was needed for the equation. 
for the occasion. The quantity and the quality of Jesus' provision far exceeded anyone's wildest expectations. Do you, do you realize what we're talking about here? Do you re, do, are you hearing what's being said here about who Jesus is, about his provision both in salvation and in spiritual growth? That his provision, that, his, that, he, that he is excessively far more than you could possibly imagine, that you could possibly exhaust, that, 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 there, that wherever your sin ends, his grace, go look on the horizon, it's still going. That, that, that his provision, whatever it is that you're fearing, whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that you're, you're worried about, instead of just simply saying, it's impossible, all I have are two, two minnows and a couple of pieces of, of biscuit, and instead of saying that, say, Jesus, you are my excessive overabundant provision. And that's where we're going here in the text, and this is what he leads us to. Jesus is able to provide excessively and abundantly, far more than we could possibly imagine. But he is also our excessively, abundantly, far more than we could ever imagine provision. You see the difference there? He's able to provide, but he is also our provision. Let's see this. He says, John's leading us to see this, and Jesus is, is leading and challenging these disciples to hear this, that he is our true and better Moses. Think about what's going on in this story. Think about what you've heard so far in this story. What is John, what is John wanting us to see in this story? Is it that he wants us just to see like Jesus showing off his massive power? Like is, is that, is, are we supposed to just simply be impressed by how powerful Jesus is? Is it that he wants us to see that he, he can provide a meal, a meal, a single meal, in the wilderness? Or is John trying to display for us that Jesus is our all-sufficient, powerful satisfaction to our souls? That's what John's trying to write for us. That's what John wants us to see. That's what Jesus is leading these disciples to understand. Not only can I provide bread from heaven in a wilderness place, I am the bread from heaven in a dry and weary land. Not only can I do it, and guess what? When I provide, I provide excessively more than you could possibly imagine. Not only can I do it, I am it. <laughs> is that where your hope is this morning? Is that where your confidence is this morning? Is that where your identity is this morning? John is leading us to ask these questions and think about these things. Jesus is our overabundant provision Jesus is our true and better Moses who solves our hopelessness by excessive, overabundant provision of himself. Think about this. There's two occasions in the Old Testament you're familiar with. You probably picked up on it. You probably heard it. But there's two occasions that are very similar, almost identical to this occasion in the wilderness. The first that we jump to naturally is Israel in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16. And in dire circumstances, after the Passover, after going into the wilderness, just a month or two after the Passover and after crossing the Red Sea, now they're in the wilderness, now they're in a desolate place, now they're in a deserted place, now they're grumbling. And they're asking God to provide for them. And listen to what it says in Exodus 16, 8, 12, and 16. They, they grumbled and they complained and they longed for 
as much as each person could eat to the full, they wanted bread. They, they longed for bread. And, and what they say in Exodus 16.3 is, I wish that we could go back to Egypt where we were in slavery and oppression, but at least we were fed. And what God promises in Exodus chapter 16 is, I will provide for you excessively abundantly far more in this dry and wilderness place. I will be your provision. I will provide for you manna from heaven. I will provide for you rescue. The second story that's very similar to this is in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. There the prophet Elisha is with his men, and he sent a servant out to get food, sustenance for his, his men. And he's got 100 people with him. And the servant comes back, and he comes back with 20 barley loaves for 100 people. And Elijah says, give the barley loaves to the people. And the servant says, what are these? These are nothing. This will never feed this many people. And Elisha says in 2 Kings 4, 43, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Now here's the thing. And John's drawing this out, and Jesus is making this proclamation. Moses was a prophet who provided bread. Elisha was a prophet who provided bread. Jesus is the prophet who is the bread. Moses provided sustenance, called down the bread from heaven. Elisha said, the bread will be enough, will provide for the people. Jesus is the bread that is enough for the people. Jesus is our bread who is enough for us. So let's see this in a couple of different ways. How is Jesus our true and better, Moses true and better, Elisha true and better bread? First, What's the setting? Let's go back and remember. What's the setting for this occasion? This is a great Bible study time. How do we study the Bible? We always remember the context. What is this? What's at hand? The Passover. What happened at the Passover? Remember Moses was told by God to instruct the people to make a sacrifice, to slit the throat of a lamb, to take the blood of that lamb and to put it over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over them. And what did the people do on, after that? They prepared a meal, and they waited for deliverance. They waited for God to come through for them. What are we being told here? Jesus is our lamb. John's already said that, John chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus is our lamb, who, who was pierced for us, whose blood was shed on our behalf, whose blood over us covers us, so that God's wrath passes over us. And John is trying to tell us we're not waiting for deliverance anymore. We're not waiting for rescue anymore. Rescue is standing in front of us in Jesus. He is our hope. He is our rescue. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. What's fascinating about this story? It's, a, it's amazing that, the, the, again, the layers, it's like an onion. It just keeps coming back and you just keep seeing more and more and more. The Passover is at hand, Ten to 15,000 people. Why are there so many people here? Because they're on their way on a pilgrimage, likely to Jerusalem. What are they going to be talking about when they get to Jerusalem after this occasion? They're going to be talking about Jesus as the overabundant provider in the wilderness. You remember? Remember Moses? They're going to be going into Jerusalem and saying, remember, we're celebrating the Passover, and remember, we celebrated walking out of, of Egypt 
out of slavery and out of oppression and out of bondage and we walked into the promised land and God provided us manna from heaven. Do you remember that? Jesus just did that. Do you remember? Think about this. Ten to 15,000 people are about to go into Jerusalem and what are they going to be doing? They're going to be witnesses to the overabundant provision of Jesus. What were the religious leaders saying that Jesus must provide for them? Give us a witness. Give us testimony. Prove that you are who you are. Ten to 15,000 people are about to walk into the city and saying, he is who he said he was. He's the Messiah. He's the provider. He's the redeemer. He's the deliverer. He's our true and better Moses. So the context helps us. Secondly, remember the setting. Where are they? They're in the wilderness. They're in the desolate place. They're in the deserted place. This is, I just can't believe, like, like there's just so much here. Do you, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and it says that in the beginning God, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember how the heavens and the earth were before God created? They were formless and void. Formless and void. Do you know the, the Hebrew word there means desolate, deserted, empty, nothingness? And what did God do in, into, into nothingness and into chaos and into wilderness and into desolate places? God spoke abundantly, overabundantly, excessively. And what came forth? Life. What happened? Fast forward, Exodus chapter 16. Moses in the wilderness calls down. God speaks through Moses. God, God provides manna in the midst of the wilderness. He provides life in the midst of wilderness. What are we seeing in Jesus in this text? What does John want us to see? What is it that Jesus is revealing? I am not simply the true and better Moses. I am God who can provide life in your desolate, dark circumstances of sin and death. I am the answer. It's remarkable. It's unbelievable all of the the, the things that were being shown here. And what is the last thing? What's the result? How, what do the people say as a result of this? Verse 14. What do, they, what do they begin to proclaim? Indeed, this is the prophet who was to come. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Likely referring to Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses' prophecy and, 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 and prediction and foretelling that there would be one to come like him from them who would, whose voice they must listen to submit to, bow to. What is their confession? What is it that John wants us to see? This is the prophet. This is the one. This is the redeemer. This is the true and better Moses. He is the one that Moses told us about. He is the savior of the world. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He is our true bread from heaven. He is our deliverer from bondage to sin and death. He is the source of overabundant life. Having shared all of that, what does John want us to do? Embrace him. Cling to him. Hope in him. Trust in him. Look to him. This is what John is writing about. And this is what John is teaching us. Let's think about application here. There's so much. I mean, I I think it's dripping from the pages, but let me draw out a few things. We've already kind of made a few uh, references to application, but let's just do a few here. First, If Jesus can provide physical life in such and nourishment in overabundant excess in the midst of wilderness, how much more can he provide spiritual life in overabundant excess? 
We have to think on the spiritual level first. That's, John, that's what John wants us to see. That's clearly what the, the Holy Spirit is writing. We have the word for. We're, we're supposed to see on a spiritual level. We're supposed to think on who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. If Jesus, this story, if Jesus can provide an overabundant excess, if he can provide physical nourishment in such overabundant excess, how much more can he provide spiritual nourishment, spiritual life? in overabundant excess. If he can do that out in the wilderness and in the desert and provide abundantly more than all they expect and all they imagine and it's perfect and it's great and it's all satisfying, then how much more is he all satisfying to your soul? I think that leads us to a second question and that is, therefore, what are you clinging to this morning? What are you embracing to satisfy your soul? What are you clinging to to be your provision, your overabundant provision? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Think about it in context of Israel. In, in Exodus 16, 3, in the wilderness, they would ra- the irony is unbelievable. They would rather go back to slavery and oppression and have measly little limited bread in Egypt than be in the wilderness with the God of the universe who provides for their every need. Do you know, if you read in the Old Testament, when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, I can't remember the reference off the top of my head, it says that they, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and their sandals never wore out. <laughs> he provided for their every need, every single need. They would rather be in slavery and bondage to, to Egypt eating worthless crumbs rather than be in the wilderness with the God of the universe who provides for their every need. Are you like the Israelites in the wilderness pointing back to slavery in Egypt and the little food that you have there and are you calling that life? Or are you looking to the one who is life? Are you like the crowds in this story looking to Jesus' gifts but missing the overabundant giver? That's why they were following him. They wanted his gifts. They didn't want him. Is that true of you this morning? Are you like Philip, calculating what you need to do to solve the problems you face rather than fully leaning on and embracing Jesus? Are you trying to solve your own problems or are you looking to Jesus to solve them? I'm not discounting personal responsibility. I'm not not discounting human wisdom. I'm not discounting that we should also act. I'm just simply saying isn't our tendency to first see a problem and rather than see the problem and go, Jesus, I need you, you are the answer. Instead of seeing the problem, we go, I, what do I got to do here? Hmm, isn't that our tendency? Are you like Philip in this? Are you clinging to yourself or Jesus? Are you like Andrew, doubting Jesus' ability to truly come through and provide? Do you see the problem and you see a solution But instead of saying, Jesus, you are the one that can multiply this. You are the means. You are the provider. You are the provision. Instead of seeing him as the biscuits and him as the fish and him as the water and him as the satisfaction, do you you say, well, eh, oh well, what are we going to do here? (laughs) Or are you like the little boy in the story? We forgot about him, didn't we? we? We skipped right over him. The little boy with the little Pillsbury dough can, right? The little five biscuits and the two minnows. That's everything that he had. That's his meal. And yet he gave it up willingly. And guess what? 
He gave up what little bit that he was clinging to, and what was the result? What was the re- what? He experienced the excessive, overabundant provision of Jesus. He got far infinitely more than he could ever imagine. Isn't that true of us? Isn't that... I'll stop saying us. This is true of me. I, I so often will, will cling to little things, and I'll say, this is the answer, this is the hope. Or, or when I see Jesus, and Jesus is actually providing me infinitely more, I'll say, uh, I don't know if I want to let go of this because of fear, because I don't know what Jesus might do. I don't know if he'll provide. I don't know if he'll come through. That's exactly Andrew. And I do the same thing. Maybe you're, you're like me. Lastly, and this is fascinating to me, blew my mind, never even thought about it. What did Jesus tell the disciples to do after, the, after everybody had eaten their fill, after everybody had, he told them to go gather up what? The leftovers. Go get all of the breadcrumbs. If Jesus is so infinitely concerned with breadcrumbs, how much more is he concerned with you and I, his sons and daughters? If Jesus is concerned to go gather the breadcrumbs, how much more is he concerned with, with you, with protecting you, with providing for you, with caring for you, with satisfying your soul? In fact, this is what he's going to say in John chapter 6, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has given me, he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, God, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's a testimony in two directions this morning. First, for those that maybe discount Jesus, ignore Jesus, and you're saying, I don't know if, if Jesus is really for me. Do you, will you let go of what you're clinging to this morning? And when you fully embrace Jesus, who is your overabundant provider, excessively more than what little meager thing that you're clinging to, you can trust him. I think this is also a mark of spiritual assurance for us, for you and I, for those who are in Christ. If he cares for the breadcrumbs like this, then he cares for you infinitely more. If he can provide for ten to 15,000 out of a, a, a five loaves and two fish, then what's your life? What's, what's your problem? that you're facing? What's your circumstances that you're suffering? What, what, what is that to him? This is something else that was challenging me this week is, you know what, maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes the, the, the things that he allows in our lives, you know, he wants to display his power that he can answer, but sometimes I think more than anything, he just wants me to come to him and embrace him. Maybe, maybe he Maybe he allows certain things in our lives simply so that we say, Jesus, I can't, but you can. Please rescue me. And that is one of the greatest joys of my life with a 15-month-old. When she, when I see her face of joy and ecstasy running like this with her arms wide open to me, I want to provide everything. You want a new car right now? Okay, I'll do it. But when she's hurting and when she's in pain and when she cries out, you know what I want? I'm, I want to cling to her. I want to come to her and I want to hold her and I want to embrace her and I want to provide for her. Maybe he allows circumstances in our lives not simply to display his infinite power, but so we cry out to him. Is that what you're doing this morning? Is that what you do with your circumstances, your problems, the things that you face? That's the challenge we have 
I want to pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this word. So beautiful, so much. We could spend weeks and weeks just in these verses. There's so much not even touched on. You are our provider and you are our provision. You are our provider and you are our provision. You are our peace. You are our rest. You are our hope. You are our deliverer. You are the one who keeps us and holds us and no one can snatch us out of your hand. All that come to you will never be lost. What assurance, what hope, what confidence. If you care for the breadcrumbs, how much more will you care for us? If you provide them with a measly little meal in the wilderness, how much more do you provide for us in salvation on the cross? How much more is your rescue? May we see it this morning, Lord. May we know it this morning. May we walk in it out of this room. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.